So please find a comfortable position. Let's sit for 30 minutes. One of the main things about posture in meditation is having the spine straight. So the Buddha usually says sit cross-legged with the body erect. And of course the cross-legged part is not essential, but it is the what they were doing, the most common way of um, sitting in India at that time and maybe still today. And even if you're meditating lying down, it's useful to bend your knees a little so your spine is flat, straight, whether you're on your back or on your side. And it's good to know these things because there come times in life when lying down might be the only meditation posture we can use. You know, Jim Pasano talked about having broken his pelvis, I think it was, or hip in Thailand. And it was lying down meditation for quite a while. And then the other important thing is to relax. I use my breathing as a support for relaxing and breathing in. And, and when I exhale, letting go of tension in various parts of my body. I understand that taking deep breaths also helps to engage. I think it is the parasympathetic nervous system. <clears throat> it's a sing signal to the brain to relax. want the body to be at ease. The Buddha talked about this. And if the body can become tranquil, that's supportive for the mind to become tranquil. And we store so much of our emotion in the body. It's so connected to the mind. 
and yet it's a, a coarser, sometimes easier aspect to pay attention to and to release. you have difficulty with some tightness somewhere in the body, maybe your shoulder or your back. Sometimes it helps to consciously tighten it up, clench the muscles in the area and then release. And of course, we want to bring our attention to our meditation object and invite the mind to let go of everything else. And to bring a sense of kindness to your body and to your mind. So that your whole system can feel at ease.
And as we do that, we might feel a pleasant feeling arising in the body. And noticing pleasant feeling helps that feeling to expand. If we set down the past and the future, let, let, it, let it be off to the side for a while. No need to engage in anything now with the mind, except our meditation object and any pleasant feelings that arise in the body or the mind. Pleasant feeling can come in the form of a lightness of heart, you know, a bit of a relief from our ordinary activities can come from just that thought of kindness. Certainly it can come from turning our attention inwards being mindful and present can show up as tingling or warmth or fullness, especially if you're using the breath as an object, as the focus of your meditation. Breath is sometimes referred to as breath energy. Really invigorates the body, but it also it carries the subtle energies through the body. Or it's so deeply connected to those energies that when the mind Imagine spreading the breath through the body. It's really the energy that is being spread through the body.
anything arises in your mind to distract you, just see if it's possible to let it go. If it's something that's more persistent than looking at the nature of that hindrance, that distraction might help. For many kinds of distractions, we can bring a sense of loving kindness, but also a firmness of intention to really give ourselves this time to be calm and quiet and focused. If it's a problem that needs to be solved and invite it to rest on the side and promise to come back to it later. Let's see if that helps. with lots of kindness for the body and the mind, and encouragement to be happy and at ease. If there's a lack of energy, then bring an inspiring image into the mind or consciously bring some energy to the base of your spine and encourage it upwards through the spine up to the top of your head. And just notice if that kind of imagery or intention changes things. Or if there's too much energy, bringing the attention to your abdomen and really grounding yourself. Noticing your feet or legs or buttocks touching the floor or chair, whatever you're sitting on and really letting yourself become grounded and still, solid like the earth. contented.
Nice. Welcome back and welcome to those of you who came in after we started meditation. So today I thought I would just talk a little bit about the way the Buddha would talk to people, really introduce them to the Dhamma. So there are a few places in the suttas. Uh, at least four places, and two of them you might want to look at are in the middle-length discourses. I think I might share the screen here so you can see. I just pulled this out of the Bhikkhu Bodhi version translation. Or let's see, I think... I think that's where I found it. It's called often called a progressive instruction. The Buddha would give progressive instruction. And these two places where you find it in the middle-length discourses are in Sutta number 58 and Sutta number 91. And in both cases, this is um, the instruction the Buddha gave to someone who is really a follower of a different group who comes to him for uh, one reason or another. In fact, this one, Upali, the householder, Upali was sent by his teacher to try to uh, refute the Buddha and argue with him and, and win, him, win in debate. And it didn't happen that way. Um, Upali was very impressed with what the Buddha had to say and he actually said, I want to follow you as a, as a um, disciple. And then it says the Buddha, the Blessed One, gave the householder Upali progressive instruction. And what follows from there is really something, as I said, that we see repeated in other places in the, in the Pali Suttas. And I think it's interesting to think about what the Buddha might have said um, as he was giving this talk. So he starts by talking about giving. And of course, the Buddha talked about giving and generosity in many ways. Um, and I really think that, and it's understood in the in the teachings of the Buddha and the Dhamma, that this is where we really start to develop by practicing generosity, giving. And I, I've talked a number of times with this group about um, Ajahn Ganha's um, talking about using everything that we do, thinking of everything that we do as a gift. I feel like this is an incredible method, a beautiful way of living and a beautiful way of seeing our work and, and what we do for other people, what we do for ourselves, you know, that we can really have the attitude of mind, the attitude of heart that everything we do is a gift. It, it really removes so much of the stress and pressure and goes 
a counter to the ways of the world where we're supposed to be trained to get something where it's considered to be really smart to get the most out of whatever it is that we're doing. And actually it, it works the, the other way around when we're really giving, uh, then we do receive the most. I remember one time I was, um, when I was working in high tech and I was doing some, um, I was involved with some, some things at Stanford with a professor there in the computer science department. And I, he was kind of overloaded with projects. And I asked if there was some way that I could help. And he got me involved in this book project and I wound up contributing to it in different ways. And, and it was like, it was my service, but it turned out to be so beneficial for me. It was um, just a really lovely example of how that happens for us. And, and of course, we can't do it with that in mind, or it isn't really giving. <laughs> we, we don't want to um, taint it in any way. One time, a friend of mine invited me to go to hear the Dalai Lama speak in San Jose at the convention center. And the place was packed with people, thousands of people were there. And one of the things he said is that if he had any idea of getting something out of this, it would ruin, it would ruin it. You know, to really be there to give to everyone there was the the attitude that would make it most beneficial for everyone. Um, to not even a thought of what we what we get out of it. So this is very different from the, the, the culture we live in, in general, as I said. And I'm looking forward to hearing what other people have to say about these different, different things. But this is how the Buddha would start off helping a person reorient their mind to be available to take in the Dhamma. And when he, he would move from talking about giving to talking about virtue or morality. And I'm, I imagine he would definitely talk about the five steps. You know, avoiding taking life of any, any li living creature, avoiding taking anything uh, that's not meant for us. So no killing, no stealing avoiding sexual misconduct no you know never using sexual energy in a way that harms either ourselves or someone else a spe speech that is true oftentimes in the sutta's speech that is true and pleasant to hear of course sometimes it's important to say some things that are not pleasant to hear that someone won't want to hear, but is really for a good purpose, really done with a heart of loving kindness. And then it can be very beneficial. And the five precepts includes, as most of you know, avoiding drugs or alcohol, anything, substances that would cause us to lose our carefulness, 
our mindfulness. And so I'm sure you talked about those things with regard to virtue, especially for someone who's new to, to his teachings. He might not have gone any further than that. But we find as we practice that virtue goes deeper into real purity of mind, really subduing sensual desire, subduing ill will or anger. But I think he gets to some of that a little bit later, even in this first Dhamma talk given to somebody. And then he talks about heaven, talk on the heavens. This is probably one that some of us aren't so familiar with. And there's some indication of what the Buddha might talk about other places in the, in the suttas. He to, told us, he encourages um, using the thoughts about devas, which are so very, probably the same thing as angels and heavenly beings, beings that are born into uh, our heaven realm, thinking about their good qualities. What does it take to be an angel? What does it take to be a deva? Um, and recognizing that we, we have those qualities too or the way in which we have those qualities. And of course, then, if there are some ways in which our way of acting, speaking, or thinking doesn't fit in with that, we have an opportunity to refine that. So I think he may have been talking to these people in that way. It's also possible that he was talking to people who have a strong, you know, um, in interest in the heavens because being reborn in the heaven realm isn't the goal in Buddhism. It's complete peace and stillness, freedom from all suffering. This idea that there is suffering in the heaven realms is something that we can easily pick up on even in other traditions. Um, and, and yet there's kind of an ongoing um, kind of a wish to see it as perfect in the heaven realms. The Buddha said, you know, life is a lot longer in the heaven realms, but still pass away. There's still dukkha, suffering. So once he finishes with that, then he talks about the danger, degradation, and defilement in sensual pleasures and the blessing of renunciation. So in a nutshell, that's anything that we see, want to see, hear, taste, touch, smell, that we're you know, longing for, wanting, that we get for ourselves and then noticing how short-lived the pleasure is from those things and how then we just want more something else something different and there's no end to it and you can really see this with um, 
you know, what people, how people strive to have more money, for example. I mean, the Buddha never had any kind of negativity about people making a good living. There's no problem with that. As long as we do it in wholesome ways without harm, that's totally, totally fine. And he gives advice about how to use our wealth in ways that are beneficial to ourselves, to our family, to our, to our friends, to the world, to a rejuvenation of whatever livelihood we have, you know, those kinds of things to, to give, um, you know, charitably, all of those things. But what he's talking about here is the danger in wanting constant comfort, wanting constant stimulation, wanting some kind of sensual experience and how that never really is fulfilling. That what we're really craving, what we're really desiring can't be satisfied through the sense world. And that if we practice putting a, a, a stop in place, holding back, um, seeking that comfort, pleasure through other means, through meditation, through kindness, through generosity, through, you know, really developing good relationships. You know, if, if we do uh, the things that actually help us develop our character, that we are much happier, more satisfied, and we don't go down the road of addiction, whether that's an addiction to something that's socially acceptable or not, it's still um, a life of dissatisfaction. So he had a lot of ways of talking about this, the dangers in it, um, the dangers in living a life that's just competing for something um, that's actually so impermanent and unsatisfying and still and becoming um, basically, you know, getting beat up in a way by, by pursuing those things. So that would be part of that, that part of his talk, I'm sure. And then it always says in these cases that when the Buddha knew that the person's mind was ready, was receptive, it, the desires and aversions, doubt, restlessness, worry, dullness, does all gone. The person is really inspired, elated, and confident in the Buddha. Then he would tell them about the Four Noble Truths. I think it's pretty interesting that it takes that that much um, to get people prepared for something that we think of as kind of the um, the basics of Buddhism. You know, then he talks about how to work with suffering, how to work with dissatisfaction with uncertainty with the constant change that we experience in this world 
and how to see the root cause of why it's so hard and painful and how we can experience the relief from that and the path that we have to practice with in order for that kind of relief to become more um, the case in our experience and to be really free, ultimately free from suffering. And then uh, here is quite a dramatic ending. Um, the person takes it fully in and he sees the, the Dhamma for himself. So this is a stream entry experience. And, um, and he becomes, as it says, independent of others in the teachings. And what that means is there's something, there's, a, there's that insight, that very profound insight comes in and the person actually has a, a really solid understanding of the way things are of Dhamma. They don't have any doubt anymore about how things work. You know, it seems a little magically quick, <laughs> but clearly this person had uh, quite a bit of preparation before ever coming to the Buddha in certain ways. And then, of course, to hear these, this all spoken by the Buddha and being in the Buddha's uh, kind of energy, if you will, must have been incredible and incredibly supportive force. So having said all that, I'm very interested in your comments and questions. Because that's really how um, I think the Dhamma comes alive. The wonderful questions you, you ask or experiences that you share. Any thoughts? Yes, Danny. Um, sensual pleasures. So, um, like having a, a really nice meal or just, I'm just looking out the window of these beautiful trees and later I'll go for a walk and, and try to take in the sensual pleasures of the smells. I'm just wondering what's, what's the line between when that, I, I guess I'm answering my own question, and that is, when you do, when you crave more, mm -hmm. if it leads to craving more, then maybe uh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Mm. Well, I think it's a really important area of exploration, and it's an important thing for each of us to experience. I think because. We do see in the suttas, especially if we look at like the, the verses by the Arahant monks, they're so into nature. Um, the toughest 
um, renunciant monk, Mahakasapa, he's like, I love this mountain. I love this mountain over and over. <laughs> this place, place where he lived. And, you know, it's, it's like to, to recognize that being in nature can be uplifting, inspiring, calming, but you're exactly right. It's like, when is it? I want, I want this thing and it's a real craving. It's not something that's just, you know, like we're, we're happy about it. It, it brings a pleasant feeling like we have some, so the birds have been so happy with this rain and it's just wonderful to kind of listen to them and see them around. But we have, especially Ayachitananda, she has this habit of saying, but I'm not coming back for that. You know, whatever it is, I'm not coming back for that. <laughs> you see a beautiful tree in bloom, but I'm not coming back for that. It's great, but, you know, that idea. And I think the, um, the places where we really need to look at what we hold as crucial to our well-being from sensual pleasures. Because, you know, it's, it's when we're, um, we, we want to fight for something um, that we think is essential to our comfort or you know, the kinds of things, I mean, the Buddha talked about sensual pleasures being the root of everything from quarrels between family members to out and out wars. You know, it's, it's not just seeing natural beauty or experiencing the nice uh, feelings of being with good friends or something like that. It's, it's more than that. It's wanting power, mm -hmm. wanting prestige, wanting money, wanting, you know, the kinds of things that actually are driving human beings to being incredibly mean, unethical, heartless. So yeah, for, for us, maybe it's something much more subtle or innocent, but it's still worth noticing, you know, like, what do I really what am I drawn to so strongly that that would cause me to get reborn in this realm? Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the comment. Neil? Yeah, so I was struck by um, the way you put it that and the way it is in the sutta that um, these basic the first things that he teaches are generosity um, I mean, it's not in front of me now but um, and I thought you know there's something really profound about that that a lot of people who come to Buddhism nowadays, I think because the teachings are so readily available, um, 
I'm not sure how to say this. I think the Four Noble Truths can be very abstract to people. Um, and or even some people may say, well, yeah, so, you know, yeah, there's I know there's suffering, you know. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I think a lot of us have come through this path in very um, convoluted ways that may not have been helpful to us for understanding, for really being ready to understand the deeper teachings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, this, it strikes me that this sutta should be like a primary text for teachers, you know, um, to sort of focus on those base, those true basic things first, um, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, it just, it just had never occurred to me, you know, that 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 way of doing things would have have ever been out, laid out that way by the Buddha, mm -hmm. um, and it's just very makes a lot of sense. This, you know, I, I don't know. That I'm just commenting on my being sort of surprised by it, as well as being um, really impressed by it. I guess you'd say. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the Buddha was so brilliant. And he really understood human beings. He really understood the nature of reality. And he, he did, he offered the teachings in a way that people could take them in. And it's still working. It's amazing. So yeah, the whole idea of giving, what that does to the heart, how that changes our orientation to our experience in life. Uh, it's it's uh, it's profound and it's beautiful, and it's true that in a, in the West uh, it's been talked about a lot that you know people wanted the meditation, and in some ways we want the sensual pleasure of the meditation, you know, before we understand the profundity of it and how it's really going to set your life upside down, you know, if you go for it, because, you know, we start to see, um, we start to see ourselves and what we, what we will need to change. And so, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. And, um, and, you know, it's just, it's so, it's so easy to be grateful to the Buddha for his incredible offering to the world. Yeah, thank you, Neil. Um, Grace has her hand up and I'm gonna go to Steve first and then we'll hear from Grace. I saw Steve's hand go up earlier too in the, in the physical way, but uh, now he's got the electronic hand too. So. <laughs> Go ahead, Steve. Yeah. Um, well, it's a little uh, bit hard to hear you. Can you get closer okay. to the microphone? Yeah, let me get closer. So okay. I'm on the maintenance committee of our co-housing here, and um, we often start our meetings just starting in on the arguments on the different things that have to get done and things like that. Um, we had a little retreat last week and then we agreed to change some of our meetings. And um, one thing we, we're gonna do now and we did this week was to uh, start with a review of a set of ground rules. And I was just thinking how that that's 
kind of what the the Buddha did here, and and what's what's in the ground rules are a lot of things that are right speech. You know, speak for yourself. Don't you know, and um, assuming good intentions. Um, so it's it's kind of a recognition of the generosity of the volunteers there, and um, so it's. I was just struck by the um, the correlation between the. Um, the ground rules that we had in this uh, kind of secular. We don't, nothing on the heavens though. <laughs> <laughs> Not the heaven, heavenly co-housing uh, environment. It's kind of heavenly. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Did you want to say more? You're muted. No, that, that was all. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Okay, so Grace and then Ariane. Hope everyone can hear me if I just talk over here. I was struck by something Neil had said. And um, I, I was also um, struck by how the Buddha began by talking about these, these other things that aren't the Four Noble Truths, because I always thought it was just the Four Noble Truths from the very beginning. And um, I, I was thinking about how even from a sort of skeptical doubt, uh, uh, intellectual mindset approach at it, it's like it, it makes sense because it correlates to what other religions teach in the beginning as well. Like many religions talk about generosity and the importance of giving and how the world works kind of that way with kama, karma, and um, and virtue you know strong virtues and values and that just even that can you can kind of see across all these um just like best ways to live life so starting from that perspective it makes sense that the the buddha would talk about that first because that's a very like easy to comprehend sort of teaching and then moving into like heavens for hope for the future and, and those kinds of concepts and I just kind of, I, I really like from all aspects of how the Buddha um, talked about that in the beginning. It's uh, really nice to hear. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Grace. Thanks. <laughs> and I don't know how other people's experience has been in that regard, but uh, if, we, if we look again at that list, um, you know, you're, you're looking at, giving them virtue, then the heavens. And that's kind of where my previous religious instruction ended. They didn't want to get into, well, that's not true entirely, right? We know about ascetic practices in various religions, but it was not really for the normal people uh, so much. Um, the The... But the stories have always been inspiring to me of saints and and um, um, the ascetic Jews and you know different different groups that practice some level of renunciation. And yeah, I think it's so valuable to see that it's important for us to do that as lay people in you know ordinary life. It makes our ordinary kind of lay, if you want to call that ordinary life, um, to to be so much more meaningful and 
um, and free from trouble, really, and freeing the mind. So, yeah, I really thank you for that perspective, Grace. Marianne? I was actually going to say something similar to what Grace said about how I think it's interesting how so many Buddhists uh, teach the Four Noble Truths as a sort of beginner introductory level teaching, but suttas like that, and I know that that particular passage is copied elsewhere in the canon, um, really make it sound like you're supposed to sort of prime your mind for it in advance, that it's, it's not really the starting point. And I think one reason, like, uh, I've sort of been going into, like, sort of more of this Advaita Vedanta uh, non-duality teachings is they're very good at getting you directly to just that sort of um, pure mind state, that sort of uh, mind free of the hindrance state and cutting right to that. Um, as sort of, a, and, and for them, that's like the final thing. <laughs> but from looking at passages like this, uh, that's just sort of the preliminary thing that launches you to the stuff that's actually unique to the Buddhist teaching. So I'm wondering if that might be, I don't know what impact that's going to have on like, you know, people as practitioners, if a lot of people are starting with the sort of putting the cart before the horse sometimes when they sort of try to get into overly deep Dhamma talks before they even have a mind that's ready for it. I don't know, I'm just speculating. Uh, sometimes we get questions from people about things that, you know, clearly are confusing uh, because the mind isn't ready for it or it's not so much, it's like the mind, but the experience, you know, we just haven't had enough of a chance. People haven't had enough of a chance to really experience the, those aspects that are so important to really develop the heart. And if we wanted, if we try too much to do it intellectually, we just, it, it can get very confusing and the progress is limited. So it's this, it's this direct experience thing that's important, like the direct experience of moving away from swatting flies or mosquitoes and killing animals for other reasons, you know, like what happens to the heart? There's a, there's a change. What happens when we change our attitude about, you know, our work and, it, and it's held as a gift that we're given? You know, we see the changes, the purification of the mind. We're so much less likely to complain about things or to, to blame people for things that, you know, are just part of a human experience. We all make mistakes. Um, we all, anyone can be overcome by greed, hatred, or delusion, you know, and to, when we start to appreciate these things and, um, through our experience, recognize that we can have a lot more tolerance and a deeper understanding of how we can be kind to others, respectful of others, you know. I think all of these things are woven into virtue. So, yeah, it's, it's, um, 
what's great is if people start with, you know, they want to meditate and then eventually they show up and start reading the suttas and getting really like a more broad um, thing. Even if the cart came before the horse, if you go back and get the horse, it's probably going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you, Ariane. Lisa? Okay, I just want to give the other perspective. It's a little puzzling to me. Um, uh, maybe there are just different ways of getting into the spiritual path. And this is one that, um, that makes sense, starting with gratitude and virtue and the, the joys of the higher joys of renunciation. But um, maybe it depends on uh, your family upbringing and um, what you, if you see the real benefit like you were saying, direct experience, if you see the benefit of um, giving another virtues in action around you, that would be, that would make an impact. But for me, you know, I heard of those things and I agreed in principle, but I don't think I would have really gotten on the Buddhist path without a direct experience of, um, of the um, the impact of suffering on myself and others and realizing that it was something that wasn't just something I, a puzzle to solve or to compete with others to get rid of, but built into our existence. So. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. It's a good point. I think this is what the teachers coming from Asia, like Ajahn Chah, really pointing out, you know, even if people want meditation before they learn these other things, um, you know, give them uh, something that helps them get involved and then fill in the rest. And it's true uh, to be able to have that glimpse that there's a way out of suffering. That is, that is such an important thing to take in. Uh, Steve wrote the, the wrong number is on the document, which is certainly possible. So it could be Sutta 56 instead of 58. You'll find it. It's in the neighborhood. Um, thank you, Steve, for putting that in the chat. And thank you, Lisa, for that perspective. I mean, the Buddha did it this way with those people in front of him. And... You know, I think that's one of the important things about learning how to help people is we have to look at, you know, to the degree we can. He was a master at it, but, you know, what is it that people, what's going to help them uh, be inspired to basically change their lives? Yeah, thank you. Neil? Yeah, you know, listening to everyone, I'm sort of thinking, I'm sort of backpedaling now on what I said earlier. I mean, I think it's definitely true that, you know, we all come from different backgrounds and perspectives. And, you know, I mean, that's something I've been aware of for a while, that the Buddha taught differently to different people based on what he understood they were ready to um, 
here. And I started just now thinking about what the first thing I ever read that got me hooked on Buddhism was, um, had to do with suffering. And uh, it was um, one of the books by Chogyang Trungpa Rinpoche um, in the Tibetan tradition. And the way I remember it, and of course, somehow in all of my moves, I've managed to, I managed to somehow foolishly get rid of his books so I, could, I can't, I have to go back and see if I'm remembering it correctly. But the phrase that struck me was that, we, that there is a tender heart of sadness that we all share. And that was the sort of the, the bullet that went through me. And I mean, that I still think of that phrase as my understanding of what dukkha is. And so, you know, so yeah, I mean, that's what brought me into the practice. So yeah, you know, there are many ways. Yeah. yeah. I think for me, part of my reason for talking about this progressive instruction today was in, in, on the theme of going back to the basics. So this is something that our teachers that we've looked to have been saying lately. Uh, Ajahn Pasano says it pretty regularly. <laughs> Go back to the basics. <laughs> and uh, not to us exactly, but to people in general. And I think when we see this way that the Buddha gave progressive instruction, we can also remind ourselves that there may be things that we can pick up from um, talking about giving virtue, heavens, etc., and and really kind of fill in whatever might be helpful into our own practice and the way we are conducting our life, uh, especially if we're at a point where we're maybe a little stalled in our practice or we, um, we aren't quite sure about something, there's some doubt, then we can go back to the basics and see if there's a way to, to bring that more together. So we have a few minutes. Does anybody have a question about anything else? We can, we can take one question, I think. No, everybody feels so content. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> okay, so um, I think we could probably end the recording and... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.